Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spendlove, and I'm joined in the studio with our co-host, Ethan Scroggins. Uh, and today we are joined by a very special guest, Professor Malcolm Bales. We're very, very excited to have him on the podcast today. How are you, Professor? I am doing great and uh, really can't tell you except to say, I will say it, I'm very delighted to be here. Uh, thank you for your interest. Well, gosh, thank you so much for, for being here. Uh, we've got, as you know, listeners, we've got a wealth of knowledge in this building, an absolute army of practicing, uh, you know, uh, of attorneys who have practiced for a long time, have a lot of experience. Uh, and we are really excited today to get Professor Bale's uh, story and to get his perspective uh, on on our area of interest, which is the criminal law. So, Professor, uh, what we'd like to do is, you know, we do this or we ask this of our guests is, will you just, will you give us your story, kind of how you got uh, maybe into law school or any, you know, part of your career before that, uh, and then kind of the story of your career and what what led you to this point? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, my dad was a career Air Force officer, and so I was an Air Force brat, as the expression goes, and uh, I enjoyed that uh, life experience and admired my dad. He was a, you know, Air Force fighter pilot and all those kind of things. The thing that I discovered, though, about myself was that um, while I em- wanted to emulate what he had done in terms of serving the country, I didn't want to be just like him uh, in several ways, of course, probably uh, there may be something psychological in there as well. But I, I became interested in law enforcement. I'm not sure there was no seminal experience early in my life, but uh, went to University of Texas uh, thinking in terms of not really knowing what that looked like, but I did have an idea that I would do some sort of public service. And then when I was a, I can't remember if it was a freshman or sophomore, they'd have to check the, the IMDB story, but I saw the movie Serpico with some friends when I was in college. And that movie uh, was riveting. I, if I watched it now, it probably would be, you know, maybe hammy or whatever. But uh, it was uh, it's the story of a guy named Frank Serpica, who's a New York police detective, a real life story. Al Pacino plays him and he gets involved um, as a very idealistic uh, officer, gets him uh, assigned to a narcotics unit that he discovers is rife with corruption and um, and then makes it his uh, mission to try to ex- expose that corruption and almost loses his life in the process. It's pretty gritty and just fast action. And I remember coming out of that movie thinking, I didn't want to be Frank Serpico exactly because I didn't want to get shot in the face like he did. But I did. I, I, that's it. I wanted to be in law enforcement. And in my mind's eye, I didn't know, I didn't know any police officers. I didn't have any law enforcement people in my background. But I, I thought, well, I could be maybe I could join the FBI. I had been a big fan of the FBI television series as a kid. It was a regular staple in my house. The Ephraim Zimbalist version, not the, the glitzier ones now, which I, I'm not familiar with. And, that, of course, it was probably just as unrealistic as the ones are now. But I loved it. And, uh, and, that no, and there, with no more insight than that, I purposed to be. Uh, an FBI agent. And I thought, because the propaganda at the time for the FBI was that you had to either be an accountant or a lawyer. 
to be an FBI agent. And of course, that has never been true. Um, the largest category of they do have categories of applicants and lawyers are a uh, can be a preferred uh, category. But that was not the case. You could do a lot of different things and be an FBI agent. In fact, that's one of the strengths of the FBI itself is that they have a lot of different people with a lot of different backgrounds who are working on these cases. And, and that, is their, that is their strength. There's a lot of um, life experience, a lot of talent, a lot of uh, not the sameness of what it would be like if they were all ex-police officers or all lawyers or whatever. But I purposed and went on that course of without any further investigation. It sounds so naive now, but you kind of have to know me as a young person. I was just like, okay, that's it. I'm going to be an FBI agent. And, um, and so I went to uh, law school, had good grades in, in UT, studied history. That was the other reason why I had to go to law school. What are you going to do with a history degree? Uh, and I, uh, but I went to law school. Uh, did not enjoy law school. I was not interested in being a lawyer. Again, I had no lawyers in my family, didn't know any lawyers personally, um, had not investigated being a lawyer. And so the law school was merely a means to the end, that end being uh, somehow being involved in the FBI. Along the way, uh, I had some amazing classes. Law school was extremely challenging. That's what I, I don't, make a big deal of it in my biography. But the truth is, if you looked at my transcript, you can tell I was a distracted, wanna, not want to be a lawyer. <laughs> I was not uh, trying to be on the law review. I was not trying to be in various organizations. I never clerked during the summer. You talk about being all in. I was all in and, and to the point where I was like almost, and it's a very immature way to look at law school, but I was just like, I don't need this. I'm not going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be an FBI agent. So I missed a lot of uh, chances, I think, for good experiences. And one of the things I've appreciated about Baylor is that they sort of make you get in the deep end of the water and, and figure that stuff out. But in any event, uh, I didn't learn until the summer, maybe before, I'm trying to think. I worked my way through law school. That was another sort of formative experience. <clears throat> you could do that back in those days, not, not now, uh, at, with the expense of, and cost of uh, law school education. But back then, tuition at a state of a place like Texas was, was uh, shockingly inexpensive, and you literally could work your way through school. So I did that. And that was another reason that I told myself, well, you, you don't have time to be involved with in these other organizations because you're working your way through law school. And you don't want to be a lawyer anyway. So I, anyway, I found out about a half a year before I graduated that there was no such thing as just having to be a lawyer or an accountant. Uh, I also found out that uh, right before I graduated that there was a hiring freeze. So I scrambled to uh, interview um, for various jobs, received a couple opportunities. Uh, but because there was a hiring freeze, I actually joined the Navy for a short period of time as a JAG attorney and stayed in there long enough to work for six months. And then um, long story short, I, I did get an offer from the FBI, resigned my commission. The Navy let me resign my commission, you know, kind of a miraculous sort of thing. Uh, I don't think that would happen now, but it did back then and uh, then became an FBI agent. 
And what I discovered was that, uh, as I mentioned to you, all kinds of different people, great people, you know, lots of salt of the earth people are, are agents. And I loved uh, being in the FBI Academy. The FBI is perfect at the FBI Academy. Not so perfect when you get out of the Academy because, uh, you know, real life sort of intervenes. It's kind of a bubble there at Quantico. But uh, what a great experience. And uh, they sort of ratify uh, the thought that you might have anyway, that you're a part of an elite law enforcement organization that is better than anybody else. And I drank the Kool-Aid all the way and it was, it tasted good. I did enjoy it um, and had some success early in my career through, uh, you know, some hard work, some luck. That's a big part of criminal investigation is you make your own luck. And I did. And then uh, moved around some, that, which was the FBI way back then to get some experience. And then ended up in Chicago where uh, people that had law school education. That's, that's why I say, you know, my law school education, becoming a lawyer was like, at the time, I thought this is the biggest mistake I've ever made. You know, I didn't need to be an FBI uh, lawyer to be an FBI agent, but it turned out to be the best mistake I ever made because I, it did put me in positions in the FBI, even at that early point in my legal career to get uh, assigned to squads in cases that, 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 um, didn't require, but um, treasured the opportunity that somebody might bring to the case that had a legal education. And so a lot of us were assigned to the public corruption squad in Chicago. And Chicago is, has a well-deserved reputation for public corruption. It was specifically uh, in uh, very ripe for all kinds of investigations back in the 80s. I was sent there in 1984. And our specific assignment was to work on the second iteration of the Greylord case, which was the, at that time, and still is, historic uh, investigation into public corruption in the Cook County judiciary. And uh, really an amazing effort by the Department of Justice. Uh, I got assigned to the squad because at, the, at that juncture in the case, uh, they had worked many of the undercover cases, that is hands-on uh, experiences where undercover agents uh, actually masquerading as crooked lawyers had paid bribes to police officers, to judges, to deputies, to bailiffs, to other lawyers uh, to obtain corrupt results. And a lot of those hands hand-to-hand -hand cases so to speak had been resolved and out of that process like in every significant case you you'd start developing cooperating witnesses and so there was some historical information that had been developed in in wiretaps and other recordings other references in cases and then some cooperating targets were also providing information and so there was a second wave of young agents that were brought into the squad i being one of them because I was a lawyer uh, to work on these, what were considered pretty sophisticated um, investigations and targets. Um, and I, I guess I thought my UT law education would prepare me for that. It really didn't, but uh, the, the chance that I got to work that case was because I was a lawyer. And so I'm eternally grateful for that uh, mistake <laughs> that I made or I thought I made. Anyway, I worked uh, in Chicago for about four and a half years and in that 
process, got to work on some amazing cases, met some amazing people. And the thing that actually changed my life uh, or the, and the arc of my career was those type of cases that I was describing for you, for example, the political corruption cases in Greylord. And there were other cases like that, other elected officials that we went at, and I was a responsible for policemen, you know, just amazing um, panorama of corruption that we had a chance to go at. Um, it, it was a, um, it was a situation where you, because of the nature of the targeting, the nature of the cases, the, the level of sophistication, you had to get permission or concurrence is what they called it, but essentially it was permission from the AUSA that was assigned to that case. At that time, that was, that's not, it's common now, but at that time it was pretty unusual for FBI agents to work closely with the prosecutors uh, at the front end of the case. Yeah. Uh, and it's really the best way to work cases. Uh, but back then the old school way was you work your cases, you prepare a report and then you bring the report to the prosecutor. And if he has a couple other things he wants you to do, you try to knock those out, but that's basically it. And then the prosecutor decides what to do with your report. Of course, that's a very, um, sort of bass backwards way to, to, to do investigations because it doesn't contemplate the various uh, pitfalls, opportunities, and challenges, depending on the statutes that you're looking at, uh, that a lawyer can help an agent with. So I was always working really on almost a daily basis with AUSAs in the Chicago U.S. Attorney's Office. They were brilliant and, and uh really had great insight and ideas about how to work these cases to a successful conclusion. And more importantly, at least for my own thinking at the time, somebody in my 30s, uh, early 30s, was that these guys were having more fun than I was. I mean, you, you think, and the PR for the FBI is, is tremendous. I mean, and it's, most of it's deserved. But the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, pretty quiet, pretty, pretty low, low key in many respects, but they were the ones, and this is the sort of the, the eureka moment. It sounds silly to say this now, but uh, they were the quarterback. You know, we were the, the linemen, you know, at best, maybe the, the halfback, but the AUSAs, the prosecutors were the ones that were actually developing the prosecutive plan, making the important decisions and obviously directing the, the, uh, the, the nature of the investigation. And of course, uh, if the case went to trial, a lot of cases did go to trial back then because of the nature of the targets. So they were amazing. And I learned so much from them. And I, and I saw that this is the way it has to be. And it's the way that it should be because the lawyers were, were, were better at understanding the full uh, dilemma that's in every single case. How, how, who did this crime and how am I going to prove it? Uh, and then what steps do I need to take to make that person not only take responsibility for the crime, but help me solve other crimes, if that's possible. The AUSAs were doing some amazing work in that regard. And I thought, and, you know, it's one of those things you work closely with people. And around the fifth or sixth year of my career, fourth year in Chicago, I started working for young AUSAs and realized that I knew just as much or maybe more than they did. Now they had the law, they, they, were, they were the ones in court. They were the quarterbacks. But I thought, well, maybe I could be a quarterback. And some of the AUSA friends that I had made actually encouraged me to do that. And the FBI is a great organization, but it's also a huge bureaucracy. 
And one of the things that people should know is that, uh, of course, the federal government and the U.S. Attorney's Office is part of the federal government is a bureaucracy. It has to be to, to organize itself and, and function. But U.S. Attorney's Offices actually have a lot of um, ability and uh, discretion as to how they will direct their, their work. So the U.S. Attorney is presidentially appointed. Uh, he's the boss of that office with very little oversight from Washington. And so in a very real way, it also attracted me that the U.S. Attorney's Office, I could go to the U.S. Attorney's Office, actually be recognized more for my efforts than, than the sameness of being in the FBI, which was, which was good. You know, I really liked the, the esprit de corps of being an agent, the tradition, the legacy, um, the excitement of it. But it wasn't, for me, uh, I wanted to be the quarterback. And the quarterbacks were the AUSAs. And so I had the chance uh, or took the chance to uh, shotgun some resumes out to the four districts in Texas where both my wife and I were from. Uh, my family was growing and we wanted to go to Texas. And, and you know, God willing, I was hoping to get a job at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And in 1989, uh, this is one of the things that I want your listeners, I hope, will appreciate is, you know, doors open in different ways and how you get those doors to open in your career. Uh, you don't want to do anything illegal. You don't want to do anything weird. But if you can separate yourself uh, from everybody else who is a, a good candidate for that job. And as a, as the, ultimately as the U S attorney in my own career, I saw hundreds of applications, hundreds of resumes and how to decide which resume to pick out of the pile is the trick for any job application. And for me, I had no business being an AUSA. I had never litigated any, any cases. I had been in trials as the case agent, very different experience, not nearly as demanding as being the prosecutor. But I had worked on the Greylord case and some other cases as well. But Greylord was the calling card that separated my resume out of the pile. It was at that time, it was the most significant public corruption case in the country. And so even though I was applying to districts in Texas that had they were far away from Chicago, they knew about the Greylord case because it was in the news. It was like a really cool, uh, big thing. And so that was the thing that got me, um, you know, noticed to get out of the pile for the interview. I had two, two job interviews, one in the Eastern District and one in the Western District of Texas. And uh, both of the people that I met, the U.S. attorneys in those particular offices, were intrigued about the idea of, one, could this FBI agent really do this? Could he, could he translate whatever skills he might have learned in Chicago to what we needed in our various offices? Because, you know, as, as, as many people will discover, uh, when you're out of law school, uh, you, that's just the beginning of how you develop as a, yourself as a lawyer. Uh, I always tell people on this end of my career that you really don't know if you're going to be good at that particular job unless you stay there at least for three or four years and maybe five or six, because it takes that much time, that many repetitions to do your job, to, to really understand it, to really learn it and to really be good at it. And of course, uh, if you can, you know, if you want, if you can stay that long, that that's, that's good. So I, I, uh, I didn't know anything about what I was doing, except I did know how to put a case together. I did believe in myself and I had been around some amazing 
prosecutors that I was could mimic some of the tricks that they had taught me, so to speak, and the way they handled themselves and the way they handled agents and the way they handled witnesses. Um, those are those are art things that are much more art than science. And you don't learn that in a law school class. Maybe you do in practice court. That's actually why I'm, I'm a big fan of practice court, even though it's grueling, is that you do get some experience in how to how to develop witnesses, which really for a litigator is is the key. Witness preparation. They don't have a class on it. I guess maybe there's a little bit of that in practice court, but they, they really to learn how to interview people, to learn how to develop them, to learn how to get them to do stuff that they don't think they want to do is really the, the key for a successful prosecutor and for probably most lawyers in that regard. And that's those are some of the things that I did learn how to do as an FBI agent. So I wasn't totally unprepared, but when I did get the opportunity uh, with those two, with the offers, and I took the offer in the Eastern District of Texas because that guy was, the U.S. attorney, my boss, was even more excited about me coming than I was, and I was really excited. But again, I just say, there's no, you know, if I hadn't gone to law school, even though I hated law school, I was me, I was a mediocre law student. Uh, and, you know, I don't tell the don't tell the dean this, but uh, well, he knows my grades <laughs> and it doesn't matter. You know, it's, I'm way down the road from from whatever I did in law school. And that's what I want to also tell listeners. If you're struggling in law school, don't just get out, get your get your license and then show people what you can do, because there's some stuff that successful lawyers know that you can't learn in a book or, or get in a class. Um, and you can be extremely successful and not be the top of your class. That sometimes translates, often does not. And I think in my own life experience, it was a, uh, it, 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 it turned out that I was a much better lawyer than I ever thought about being when I didn't even want to be a lawyer. Anyway, so I, I got hired and was involved in the OSADEF work. Um, OSADEP is a government acronym for Organized Crime Drug and Ta Enforcement Task Force. It was perfect for me. I had worked large, multi-target, multi-defendant cases as an agent. And so that sort of approach, which the OSADEP program emphasizes, which is breaking up uh, significant trafficking, drug trafficking organizations, was something that I didn't had in work narcotics cases but I had worked that type of organization. And so I, I did, and uh, it, was, it was the job for me. The, everything that I liked about the FBI, I still had. Uh, and some of the things I didn't like about the FBI, <clears throat> that is uh, the sameness of it. The, you know, everybody gets promoted at the same time. Everybody gets paid the same. That uh, changed uh, it, to some degree in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And I liked that. I liked being, uh, sort of being able to carve out my own way as a career in the, and you can't do that in the U S attorney's office. Um, I, I enjoyed being in a smaller city. I was in Beaumont, Texas initially, um, and worked these cases and it was exciting. It was really exciting. There is nothing. And I say this with all due respect to the folks that want to practice civil law, because it's important, you know, they need representation and money's important and, rights are important, but there is nothing more intoxicating, at least to me, than chasing down uh, men and women who are criminals. And that age old question, like, like you did it, uh, a crime's been committed, 
I'm going to, I know you did it. And now I'm going to figure out how to prove you did it. And if I have to try it to a jury, but I want to prove it to such an extent that you know that I, that I know it and you are willing to accept responsibility, plead guilty and actually do something to try to help yourself. That, that to me, uh, and case after case after case became more interesting to me than the actual practice of, of trial practice. Um, now you have to learn how to try a case because if you never try a case, you'll never, uh, you know, the people will call your bluff. And, and uh, so you got to be a good trial lawyer, but actually the best work that I ever did was formulating investigations that, that, that identified who the bad people were, uh, how they did it. And, and we proved it. And we, then we brought them in to sort of face the music. Um, and time after time after time, I was able to develop them into people who actually provided information to the government so that we could keep working. And, and that's, to me, was the most interesting part of the case, working cases that would have three or four or five iterations as you worked up the chain. And drug work is like that. Nobody works, does drugs by themselves. Some uh, are more insignificant than others, but we were allowed to chase everywhere uh, for the ultimate conclusion, both supply and distribution. And I, I really enjoyed the work. It was everything that I hoped for when I think back to the excitement that I felt after I watched that movie. And I just, uh, I, it, was, it was a sensational opportunity. I did some dumb things uh, along the way uh, that I learned from. Um, one of the things I did was I, I tried to move offices. I went to the District of Colorado as an AUSA, thought I wanted to live in the mountains, uh, learned some important lessons about a culture of an office and the personality of the leadership. Came back to Texas, got a chance to come back. That was pretty amazing. Um, went to a small town in East Texas, Lufkin, Texas, where they had a one-man office. I was literally the, the one man in that office. Uh, no, no legal assistance, no, no help. Um, and built a practice there for the office that eventually resulted in uh, an office growing to four lawyers, support people, lots of cases. And then I actually started working in supervision in the district. I had done that a little bit in Beaumont, but it became more significant when I was in Lufkin, which again, um, I loved, I loved that, that place. It was um, um, as close as you could be to being your own boss because you're kind of out in the satellite office. And then you could do cases that um, would change the complexion of the town. Not, not forever because crime is, is kind of like the bump in the carpet you know, you, you uh, step on it one place and the bump comes up another place and, and that would happen, uh, you know, routinely. But I loved it. I loved the case. I also loved working other cases in Lufkin. I began working on white collar crime cases uh, to an extent. I had done some of that in the FBI, of course, but not as a prosecutor and found that fraud cases were fascinating. Uh, really, the whole panoply of the federal code. Uh, was in front of me and and then uh, actually got to develop you know younger lawyers as well which is which is also um, challenging and uh, and more re and very rewarding and it's really one of the reasons why I want to teach 
um, because I think um, I'm not interested in doing much else besides what I did do. I know that about myself, but I, I have had this interest developed while I was the U.S. attorney and before to help young lawyers uh, get better at what they do and be successful, not just for their own sake, but for the sake of the of Texas, of the nation. And, and I like doing that. And, and so I'm glad Baylor gave me a chance to do that. Along the way, one of the things that happened, kind of funny, funny story. Hey, how did how'd you become the U.S. attorney? You're, uh, that was a political position. And it is. It's a political appointment made by the uh, president who, who nominates the Senate, confirms, and then you serve at the pleasure of the president, usually for the term of that particular president. I, uh, that's not always the way it is. I mean, it is the way it is as far as the nomination process. But um, in East Texas, I became the criminal chief, which is an, an organizational head of the, the criminal prosecutors in that district. U.S. attorney's offices are the lawyers for the United States in civil and criminal uh, matters, all civil and criminal matters. So there's civil work in every U.S. attorney's office, but the main stuff is the criminal stuff. And that's what I always did in my career. But um, I became the criminal chief at the end of the, no, really shortly. Uh, my boss the, at the time, the U.S. attorney, it was the, a one-year appointment at the end of the George W. Bush administration. She left after the election when President Obama was elected. I became the criminal chief shortly before she resigned. I didn't know she was going to resign. Uh, I had done that criminal chief job before. And uh, literally a month later, she resigned. And I got a phone call from Washington. Uh, there is a process. There always has to be a U.S. attorney. There, there's a process to have fill in interim U.S. attorneys while the president works to nominate candidates. And I got a phone call on Wednesday that was essentially, uh, uh, you're Malcolm Bales. Uh, are you interested in being the U.S. attorney? And I was like, well, uh, I, <laughs> I didn't say I guess. I think I said yes, of course. Uh, but, but I really was like, what, is that a prank call? You know, I actually thought, <laughs> actually thought wow. uh I got a call from uh, a woman in the executive office and she said, are you, can you stand by for a phone call in 10 minutes from uh, David Margolis, who was a high level. I knew his name. I didn't know him. Mm -hmm. I knew his name because he'd been in the department forever. And uh, I literally uh, hung up. That was what she said. They want to call you to see if you're interested about being the U.S. attorney. And I was like, is, like, this is a weird joke, but it's gotta be a joke. And, uh, it wasn't. I got the phone call a few minutes later. I had time to call my wife to say, I think this is not sure what's going on here, but I just got a phone call. And, I'm, you know, I'm going to I had a uh, I had dressed kind of casually to the office that day. I had a suit, fortunately, on the back of the door where my office was put that on because it was a um, they didn't have Zoom back then, but they had uh, uh, what was it? video conferencing Hype you know, or something. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was uh, kind of a new thing then, but it, it worked pretty good. And so I had this surreal interview for about 45 minutes on the video conference and uh, found out the next day 
that I was going to be the U.S. attorney. And then Friday, by five o'clock, Eric Holder was the US, was the attorney general, and he had to sign the appointment paperwork. And I became the U.S. attorney. I'd been in the office for eight, uh, how long? 20 years. 20 years I'd been a, a line assistant. So every line assistant at some point or another thinks to themselves, I think, most of them do at least, like if I were the boss, if I were the U.S. attorney, this is what I would do. Well, in the space of 36 hours, I, I, I that was like, okay, well, you've thought about this. What are you going to do? And um, so I, I was sworn in. Um, the office was somewhat in disarray because of the way the I kind of inherited it and uh, didn't know how long that was going to last. I was interested in the job, but uh, it's a political appointment. And one of the things about that job is uh, that's the job that you're guaranteed to get fired from eventually. And when I say fired, what I mean is it will end uh, when the when the politics of the moment change, when there's a new president. So you're kind of you're all in. And uh, at the time I had been in government service for 26 or seven years, counting my FBI time. And so um, I didn't know how long I was going to do this work, but I, so I tried to be the, I, I wanted the presidential nomination. I had a, a AG appointment, which is a, a form of that office, but not as good and certainly not as significant as the presidential appointment. And the weird thing about it was, again, one of those things, like if I had gone to law school because I thought I wanted to be an FBI, this never would have happened. And it was the craziest, greatest job ever. I had got to do so much, you know, to meet the president of the United States in the White House. It's like, like, I don't believe this is happening. Wow. And that's, wow. that's what, you know, and stuff like that ha used to happen all the time. And, and, but more importantly, I was responsible for the direction of the, you know, the work of 125 people working on, uh, literally hundreds, if not thousands of cases a year, you know, with a budget of, you know, $13 million. I'd never even balanced my own checkbook. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and so, you know, you, you really are in the deep end. And as it turned out, uh, because President Obama was so um, not popular in Texas and, and the two senators, whatever, whoever the senators are, have a lot to say who's going to actually get the presidential nomination. Well, at that time, it was Kay Bailey Hutchinson and John Cornyn. And they were not going to give President Obama whoever he wanted. There was some horse trading going back and forth. And the Eastern District, I was just sort of rocking along in my interim capacity. And the thing went on and on and on. And by the time the president made a decision to nominate candidates for U.S. attorney in Texas, there's four, four offices, four U.S. attorneys. Um, two and a half years essentially had gone by, uh, almost two and a half years, a little over two years, actually. And, and I, I really think uh, I was nobody's first choice. I wasn't anybody's choice, really. I was just the guy that, that the AG had picked because they needed somebody to fill in after the previous U.S. attorney had resigned. But I, I think I was doing a good job. I think I was, you know, I, I felt the providence of God in the, in the deal, honestly. I, I don't, you know, God didn't speak to me about it or anything. I mean, I literally got a phone call from somebody who I thought it was a joke. But I did feel his his hand on me as I tried to do this job. And it was sort of the culmination of everything that I had invested in professionally in my my adult career. And so I, I liked it and I thought I, I would be the best candidate. And 
that's the other thing I want folks to think about is, you know, don't settle. You know, it might take a while to find that job that you're that you really do feel strongly about. And whether it's criminal law or civil law or something or nothing at all to do with the law and you find it because you because that's somehow you got that job, you know, don't settle and and um, find the job that that suits you and makes you feel really good about being a lawyer and that you do good things for people because you have that opportunity. Anyway, I thought that was what uh, was perfect for me. And uh, as it turned out, you know, being the second choice was was good enough if, if I was even that, because as it turned out, he nominated all four of us at the same time. Um, nobody else had really developed as a rival to my candidacy at that time. It had been too long uh, for people to, to wait for that sort of opportunity if they were really interested in it. So I got to be the U.S. attorney for seven and a half years, uh, follow, you know, received the nomination, of course, and then retired uh, shortly before the, uh, the election, the 2016 election. Um, I was exhausted. It's a very uh, amazing job, but it's a pretty consuming job, at least the way I did it. I thought it was I was consumed, at least. And um, and then there were some personal things in my life. My mother uh, was widowed and I wanted to step back to help her. She needed a lot of help. And in fact, today I'm in her apartment talking to you because she's she's broken her some bones in a fall. Oh, shoot. Yeah. Terrible. Um, but it's kind of hard hear that part of my reality in, uh, in my life now. But um, anyway, uh, I also was, uh, it, 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 I thought it was time for a change for me personally, but I also think that um, whoever was going to be elected would probably not be satisfied with inheriting uh, the U.S. I never, to be honest though, I never dreamed it would be Donald Trump. I, I wasn't a big fan of either person, either candidate actually. Um, and that's one of the things that's interesting about my career. I'm really not political. I, I mean, I have opinions, I vote, but if you work for the Department of Justice for any length of time at all, um, one new thing you learn is that there is not a it's not a Democrat or a Republican job. Criminal justice, and that that's the thing that's so awesome about it, and why I'm so excited for the Criminal Law Society is, if you invest in criminal justice, if you really do this, it doesn't matter. Uh, if you're a Republican, a Democrat, or if you're an independent, you, the, the law is in its perfect form is not a, a political question hmm. and how you enforce it is not a political question or an issue. You'll see people, you know, one party will want to be tough on crime and another party wants to do criminal justice reform because they think mistakes have been made and, and maybe both sides are right, but in the main, in the main, for a, a, a real prosecutor, uh, it, it doesn't matter who the president is. It matters how it matters about your leadership, about your commitment to justice, and your your faithfulness to enforce the law uh, under the Constitution. And and so I I really didn't matter to me whoever the president was going to be. I was going to resign for personal reasons and because. Um, my wife was tired of me traveling so much. And so I wanted to go home as well. And I had a good friend in the office that when I resigned, he got to be the acting. And uh, I thought he, that would help him maybe become the U.S. attorney. It didn't because mm -hmm. it's, it's a political process, but mm -hmm. uh, he, still had, he still had the chance. And I wanted to help him do that. 
and it's been, uh, it was, it was amazing. I mean, I, I'm, I know I've forgotten more things than I remember about all the great experiences I had, all the great people I worked with. But when I left, I was spoiled. And so for me, the pursuit of criminal justice is really works for me because I'm a very uh, black hat, white hat person and, and working for the department, um, the marching orders every day, pretty much were you're wearing the white hat, do what the white hat's supposed to do. And uh, if you have a question, come see me, but you should, you should pretty well understand what the white hat's supposed to do. And you do. Uh, yeah. There's, there's, there's very little, there's close calls and how you might charge a case, how you might handle somebody in terms of a disposition. There's lots of judgment in that regard, but in terms of, of doing that job on a day-to-day basis, it's pretty clear. You, you, you enforce the law uh, without prejudice, without bias, uh, with zealousness and uh, mercy is not incompatible with that. But uh, be zealously merciful, too, as far as how you might resolve a case. But you go after people. You go after the crimes. And then the, state, the chips fall where they may. And I really like that. And, and I knew I would not be good at uh, criminal defense, for example. Because I just, not that they, I don't think that's a black hat job. I think the best criminal uh, defense lawyers are, are heroes of our system. But I knew it wasn't for me. I'd be rooting for the government in every case. <laughs> That's not being, and that would not be, a, uh, I would not be a good advocate in that regard. I did want to do, the thing that I thought I might be interested in uh, was teaching. And, and one thing about the government, people say, oh, you're not going to get rich being a government lawyer. And I guess that's true, but uh, not really. I, I made more money than I ever dreamed I would. I would have done the job for less. And, uh, and I don't need to work. And so I think that's, if that's a measure of some level of wealth that was provided to me by my my career in public service. Uh, The thing I did want to do though, was give back something. I I was maybe done with the office or the office would be done with me because of the politics. Once you're, once you're not the U S attorney anymore, you don't, you don't go back to the line. That's not really feasible. You could, I guess, but I'd have to be rehired and all that stuff. Anyway, it was time. And, uh, and I tried a couple of little civil things. They weren't criminal things. Didn't like it. It's not me. And uh, I did want to teach though. And, and so I had met uh, because you're the U S attorney, you get to meet all kinds of people. And I'd had a, a daughter attend and graduate from Baylor law school. I came over for some uh, to guest judge some mini trials was really impressed with what I saw. You know, it's funny. Uh, I, there were a lot of Baylor lawyers. My best friend in the office uh, is uh, Tom Featherston's little brother. And he's a Baylor lawyer. And mm-hmm. uh, I uh, always thought they talk about practice court. And I thought, well, how tough could it be? You know, really is, I, you know, you think you know, how everybody talks about their schools sometimes, but like, like, is it really for real? I mean, are you like, like, okay, you're in the Baylor mafia, but I, you know, is it really that big of a deal? And then I came and heard about it from my daughter and saw a little bit of it as an observer. And I thought, well, this is different. I never did anything like this at Texas. And, uh, and then when I started teaching here, I realized when I, when I saw it close in a, 
close, more close up way. It is uh, significantly different. It is a an amazing program uh, for all the law students to go through, whether they want to be, you know, trial lawyers or not, because teaching them skill sets that will translate very well to their to their careers as practicing lawyers. Anyway, I had met. Uh, I'd done that. I'd met Brad Tobin at a couple of functions. You know, Dean Tobin is a, a guy that makes the rounds really well representing Baylor. And he would show up at some things that I would be at because that's, you know, the attorney got invited to, to some sort of function and uh, saw him speak a couple of times. And I was impressed with what was expressed to me and what I had seen in other people that I'd worked with that Baylor did have a commitment to teaching their graduates that the that the legal profession is a service profession and that your license is uh, obviously something that you'll make a living with, but uh, you want to live well while you're making that living. And that living well means giving, uh, giving back. And so I, I like that. I liked what uh, Dean Tobin would say at some of these talks. And, uh, and then I, I'd understood that um, Baylor was interested in, having people teach that had done, had some measure of success in their legal careers. Uh, I, I was not, as I already mentioned earlier, a great scholar, uh, didn't pretend to be, but I did know how to put cases together and I didn't know if Baylor was interested in that or not, but I offered my, I offered to say, I'd like to try this if you, if, if you wanted to talk about it. And so um, here I am in my fourth year as an adjunct, teaching a couple of classes and, and sometimes I'd like to do more, but I I'm enjoying what I'm doing. And more importantly, uh, it's not about me. It's about the criminal law program at Baylor. And I hope I'm contributing and bringing value to that program because I do see, as I mentioned before, a very significant deep interest in, in some of the young law students uh, who want to pursue this for their career. And it, man, it excites me. Because I I like flashback, you know, to the late seventies, and I graduated in nineteen eighty, and that was me. I mean, I didn't know what that exactly meant, but I knew I wanted to do public service. I knew I wanted to be, you know, an FBI agent at that time, whatever that meant. And far as far as law enforcement, didn't even know, never dreamed that I would be an assistant U.S. attorney, much less the U.S. attorney. But uh, I so I so when I hear and I hear these stories frequently. I'm really excited to be some help and encouragement to them uh, because sometimes law school, and I felt this way before when I was at school, that um, I was part of the law school, but not really. You know, everybody else seemed to be like on a different track than me. And I, and I don't know if that's how the criminal law students feel. Uh, I hope they don't because it's, uh, it's such a great, great pursuit, such, such an important pursuit. But um, I've met some uh, people that wanted to be FBI agents. You know, they heard my story. Oh, what was that like? How'd you do that? And uh, I can, man, I can relate to that. And, and so I've enjoyed being at Baylor for that reason. I've met a lot of uh, kindred spirits, you know, 40 years younger than me, 45 years younger, maybe, but uh, kindred spirits, nevertheless. Wow. Professor Bales, that was... <laughs> I mean, you're talking about getting inspired by a movie. I've got a movie in my head, the Malcolm <laughs> Bale story that we need to yeah. get in front of 
you know, one of these directors, gosh, there was, there's some great stories, you know, every, and that's the thing. Um, the other thing I would try to explain to people, and it's one of those things that you can't, you can talk about it, but it's not as good as doing it. And I used to tell people when I was their boss, uh, you, you, you cannot tell folks that the things that you get to do, that you get paid to do on behalf of the American people, you, you couldn't make it up. I mean, I would be in cases, you talk about a movie where you were talking to these guys, bringing, kind of bringing them to heel. Uh, with with the the tools that you have as as the in the Department of Justice, and it would be like it would be like going to the movies, you know the the lives of crime that they had led and all the things that they the, the little twists and turns in the cases. Um, I could tell you so many stories where we did something, you know, something in the case, and it worked out like this so almost miraculously, and that happened all the time. Wow. Uh, it, so many, so many cool things that you're like, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. <laughs> uh, and uh, because it was such a cool, cool job. And uh, yeah, wow. I, I think that that's really cool. And in, in fact, when you mentioned, you know, going to the movies and, and seeing something that really triggered that for you, I, I feel like I have a similar you know, what they talk about in storytelling and inciting event. I, I know you said, you know, you, you didn't really feel like that until you saw this movie, but yeah. when I was a kid, we used to watch a lot of Turner classic movies. My dad loves the classic movies. He's not, he's not too old. I mean, he was, you know, born in the sixties, but he loves yeah. these old, these movies from I, the thirties, forties right and fifties. I'm right there with him. I'm right there yeah. with him. Yeah. And on Turner classic movies one night, was this old uh, Jimmy Stewart flick from the fifties, which you may have seen called the FBI story. I have seen that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know what it was. I mean, I was, you know, we're Jimmy Stewart fans in my, in my house. We love uh, it's a wonderful life. You know, we yep. love a lot of the things he's done, but I saw this movie about the FBI story and I was like, that's it. I want to do something where I'm, you know, I, I mean, where I'm, on the law enforcement side or I'm taking down bad guys or I'm doing this set or the other thing. So uh, I, I was having a little laugh when you talked about that. I hear you. That's exactly uh, that. That's, it sounds so corny, but that's, that's what it was for me as well. Yeah. Well, and uh, like, I know a lot of people, I'm, I think I'm on the, you know, in the minority here, a lot of people uh, have watched every episode of law and order and all the other iterations, SVU and all that stuff. And I think a lot of folks who want to get into criminal work, you know, get excited by that kind of thing. Uh, and it's, I don't know, there's, we'll have to leave it to the psychologist to figure out why those of us who kind of are on this bent, uh, you know, get, get so inspired by those romanticized depictions uh, of that work. But uh, I think it's, I think it's interesting. Uh, yeah. Law and order drives me crazy, actually. One, because <laughs> I've got, my wife is addicted to them. Sure. Uh, and, uh, and, and, but, you know, it's a certain formula that works, but if you know anything about how those things really are put together, it's very annoying. And they do a lot of, uh, they, you know, they do some stuff, whoever writes for them, uh, does some weird legal things to try to make it more topical or more salacious mm. uh, sometimes. And I'm just like, like mortified when, when Jack uh, spins some crazy murder theory that it would never fly in a million years. But of course it's the premise of the show. I can only imagine that uh, practicing doctors and surgeons get a little bent out of shape. Things oh. like 
you know, Grey's Anatomy, right? I, I got through about a season and a half of Grey's Anatomy with my wife before I was like, man, even I can see how contrived some of this is, but you know, it's television, right? You've got to, you've got to suspend that disbelief. Yeah. Um, Oh yeah. Go for it. You talked a lot about, I mean, you've moved a lot, like you've done a lot of different roles and Mm -hmm. like expanded your skill set a lot. Yeah. Like any advice or words of encouragement to somebody who is maybe considering just kind of staying in that role, like you said, not to settle, but you know, maybe somebody who they worked in the same office for two summers or they don't really want to go to a different office because they, they like that environment that they're in now. Like, do you have any advice about the benefits of yeah. reaching out and going outside of your comfort zone? I do. Um, and, and I'm the one guy who would say, you know, very much, uh, you know, uh, keep your head down, work hard. And I do think this actually, that opportunities will, will become available to you. The one thing that I would see, and I saw this uh, occasionally when I was the U.S. attorney. So my job part also besides running the office was hiring people. And um, so we were always looking for people. And, and there's, there's two theories of, of how the, that should work. Um, one theory is that it's a stop off point for you uh, in your legal career. You'll get some trial experience. You'll, you'll work on some amazing cases, learn a lot. And then you'll like, quote, grow up and go, you know, be a real lawyer and make, make a lot more money. Um, And then the other, the other uh, approach is the approach that I took, obviously, which is that this is a, a, a place, a calling that is worthy of your best efforts for as long as you can can give those best efforts. And uh, because what happens in the government is that eventually it's not like private practice where you can kind of eat what you kill. And it's not like that at all. You will eventually cap out. And so I think it's a good living, but it's not going to be the kind of living where you might hear stories where guys are making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars every year, or maybe a million dollars. That doesn't happen. But what does happen, and this is what I would say to people, is that, you know, uh, some situations you can be in and you know right away, you don't like the people you work with, you don't respect your boss, um, you, you, you don't, you see it for what it is, maybe not when you got hired, because it was a good, you know, it's exciting to get hired. But once you're there, you realize, I don't want to, I don't want to be these people. And you get out of there. And so that some, hopefully that's easy to see. Sometimes, though, and I think this is true for the law, is that um, it is not a position that you can know everything you need to know in six months or a year. You know, the probation period is long run, but you're still sort of on probation because you're still learning your job. And that is particularly true in prosecution because it takes a long time where you do a lot of different cases and you learn a lot of different techniques. And you just have to be around a lot of different kinds of people to find out what am I good at? What are the things that work for me? How can I be a better leader in my cases? And that's not something that's intuitive necessarily. Some people are better at it than others, maybe more gifted at it than others. But but you need to be at a place for a while. And I think uh, what I know from my life experience, and I've seen not just me, I've seen lots of other people that there is real value 
and staying in something because the people that, that are the best prosecutors, uh, and I've seen this over and over again, you know, maybe may they weren't the most naturally talented, but they, but they know because they've been there now and they've been there for like 12 years and there's nothing that you can throw at them that's really surprises them. You know, it might be harder to work on, but there's nothing you can do that they can't resolve because they've, they've just seen it and they know what their strong suits are and what works and what's a waste of time. And, and I don't think you can learn that uh, without digging in for a while and investing in your career and really learning how to do that job. Now, that's, that's something to say, well, what do I find? What if I find out at, you know, 12 years that I don't like that? I guess that could happen. I mean, there's another thing that's part of legal careers that uh, I experienced in a, in the, you know, when I went to Denver, I really felt like I was going through a midlife crisis. And, uh, and I think most people do, especially men, you know, I don't know if that's sexist to say that, but it's not, it's the truth. Uh, women do a little bit, but I think women are more stable than men <laughs> and, and don't, don't have those ups and downs, but, but uh, so you got to survive the midlife crisis. It's inevitable in whatever you do. And I did um, got back to Texas and, you know, got back in the same office, but that that's what, I guess that's what I mean. And I, it's hard to say, is there a recipe card when you know it's going to be the job for you or not, but, I think you you will know when you can look at the person next to you, you can look at your boss, you can look at people that you're responsible for, and you can honestly say these are people of like mind and like character, and I could build a professional life with them. Are they perfect? No. Are you perfect? No. But but you, you have a, a mutual respect where you um, – think highly of them as individuals you're their brother or sister in arms and and so you're going to build a professional life with them and you can do that in the u.s attorney's office i i did and it was a phenomenal life experience and the guys that left early some of it you know everybody has their own story i don't think less of them i just think that they missed something i don't know if that answers your question ethan but those are some of my thoughts Professor, I have a related question then for you. Um, you know, everybody's, especially at this stage when we're in law school, trying to get a peek over that next hill, right? What's going to be coming yeah. after we're, you know, after we've taken the bar and passed it. Can you talk to like the current lay of the land as far as getting into a federal prosecution yeah. job or getting into the FBI? Because some of the things we hear are, you know, they don't hire the, the federal's don't hire right out of law school or you need yeah. to go to the state level for a while or, you know, even you, right. You talked about kind of the mythology about getting into the FBI. So can you talk about kind of the lay of, of the land getting started in both of those uh, organizations? Yeah. Uh, one thing you have to do <laughs> that I didn't do. Uh, they now have, you know, the, the worldwide web, of course, was, uh, I guess it was around, but it wasn't worldwide. And I certainly didn't know about it. Uh, when I was pursuing my career, but, uh, but, you know, the FBI has a very fulsome website that will give you up-to-date information on their applicant process. Every division, FBI division, and, and for Waco, for example, it would be in San Antonio, but there's an office in Waco that you could call somebody and somebody in that office has the collateral responsibility of doing some sort of 
uh, PR or contacts for applicants. Um, they can give you up-to-date information too. The, uh, the programs change. For example, some of the things that, that the FBI is highly values now uh, are things that were not, not around when I was trying, you know, uh, there wasn't, uh, it was the Soviet Union back then. So if you could speak Russian or, or any of the Eastern Bloc languages, uh, the Chinese, Chinese has always been a thing, but now, you know, if you could speak, uh, Arabic or Farsi, you would, you, you, you know, they would love you. They would, they would kill for that because of the nature of the terrorism mission. Um, there is, um, so foreign languages are always a big deal for them. Uh, cyber is a big deal. That was not a thing when I was a young person. But the but so one thing has not changed. The FBI still hires lawyers. And in fact, the opportunity for lawyers in the FBI has actually expanded. Uh, there's the uh, nature of investigations um, is such that there are more people in the FBI working at everybody's an agent that, you know, that has to learn how to be an agent, but there are more lawyer agents that are doing work just as lawyers uh, in the FBI, much more so than when I was a young agent. So you could be a, a very, you know, full-time lawyer for the FBI doing the things that the FBI needs you to do. But the, 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 you know, the bread and butter of it is, is investigations in the field. Um, but, you know, whether, I, you know, I like, for example, one of the things that the FBI requires uh, that implicitly slows you down is if you had a college degree, you had to have a college degree plus three years of what they call relevant experience. And relevant experience could be a lot of different things. But when you were a lawyer, they would let you immediately become eligible to be hired if you had a law degree. And somebody told me that they're now requiring a law degree plus a year of experience, which is kind of crazy because um, you wouldn't really want to take a job for a year and then leave. I guess you could. I mean, I've done short jobs before, but but whatever the process is, I meant to look that up. If people aren't listening to this podcast or interested in the FBI, make sure you go to the website, make sure you call your local office and ask them specific information. It's it's the 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 difficulty in getting in the FBI is if you're in a certain category, you might have to do other things before the FBI is interested in you. You have to be of a certain age, um, at least 23 and no older than 37, I think. Um, and then uh, and then and then you have to go through the hopper of uh, the grind of thousands of applicants that the bureau is trying to process. Some get kicked out right away, but. Uh, Thousands of people don't get hired. It's only a few hundred people, maybe, maybe even less, depending on the budget. And that's that's the thing you don't know. And they can't really tell you. It's not like a usual job process because somebody in Washington is making the ultimate hiring decision based on numerous criteria that may have little to do with your specific case. But, you know, they're looking right now. They want more lawyers. And so if you're in the law category, you got a better chance for this particular class. Or maybe they're looking for, you know, more general or more language, foreign language, people, you know, whatever the case may be, it changes. And somebody in Washington is crunching those numbers and crunching those that information. And the process itself takes months. It wasn't uncommon for people to be hanging around trying to get a job, doing whatever they could in the meantime for, for years. And so 
I tell people, you know, you better want this job because it's not like a regular job interview process. And the nature of the Washington component of it makes it really challenging. So you can't call your friend that you met in San Antonio or Waco and say, hey, what's how's it look? Because he honestly doesn't know. You know, it was very frustrating for me. Uh, I had a wife and children and uh, I was trying to make decisions. You know, I had a law firm that was trying to hire me at the time. I didn't really want to go with them. But I was trying to find out, well, hey, you guys gave me the test. You gave me the interview. I took a physical. Am I going to hear something? So we don't know. I thought, is this some sort of weird psychological game that they're playing on me? Oh, man. Like to prove that to prove that I really wanted it. And it wasn't. They literally didn't know. Somebody in Washington had to pull the trigger. And I got a letter, you know, months later. But it was like by that time I had actually joined that law firm, realized to your point, Ethan, these were not people that I wanted to be like or be around and was already trying to figure out how to punch out when the FBI letter came. Thank goodness. And because uh, I had resigned my commission in the Navy and it was just I, I mean, it was crazy time in terms of like, how am I going to provide for my family? And, uh, you know, I, I went I went to law school for this. And, and it, but it happened. It happened. And, and uh, so, and, but, but there is truth to that. And part of the process, like, why can't they hire uh, Baylor lawyers straight into the U.S. Attorney's Office? And the answer is they could. But the, there, it is so competitive for those jobs in the Eastern District of Texas, which is not the most popular place to work, but, it, but it's popular because it's a great job no matter where you work. Uh, it was common to get 150 resumes for, for a job. Uh, and that's like, how do you stand out from 150 resumes? And I wish I could, I wish I could package it. You know, I'd try to sell that product. It's what I was talking about. I don't know what it is. You know, you, you try to find something that makes you st- set up, stand apart from all the other 150. But even, even now, if you looked on USA.gov or whatever the job posting is for, for AUSA jobs, almost every single one of them, I, bet says you need like three years of experience. They're just not going to take a chance on a new lawyer. They used to. I actually know a couple of people that were hired out of law school and me getting hired straight out of the FBI is a weird story. But um, I, at least I'd had the six and a half years of FBI experience um, to sort of, you know, have have as a, 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 you know, a ticket to try to cash in. But uh you know, most it, it just just does not happen, and I, it's frustrating because I've actually seen some Baylor lawyers since I've been working there who show like unbelievable skill and talent. And the only thing I was going to say is, I say that it, it's it still takes more than that. You, there's something else, and I can't, I don't even have the word for it. Uh, a certain drive, a certain thing. I don't even know what I was looking for it all the time that you're looking for to, to hire somebody that you think this person is just going to be amazing. They're going to do great work for the people. And uh, so law school is a, the, obviously the first building block for it, but the, the department of justice is just shut down. Now there are ways to, to, to sort of defeat that they have not defeated, but to get to sort of wedge your way in, they have an honors program, hiring program, which um, I didn't, I was not an honors graduate, so I didn't investigate that. Of course, I didn't want to be a lawyer then, but, uh, there, there are honors programs that are hiring people right out of law school in the department of justice. I've met several people, um, 
that have done that, it's, it can be the beginning of an amazing case, amazing work, uh, amazing career, but those are not very uh, many jobs. And um, when, when it's, it's skewed away from what I think is sometimes the thing that people miss in looking at a candidate, which is uh, unnecessarily emphasizing grades over other things that they've done in their lives because that's just they have to pick something and usually it's uh you know high academic achievement that kind of thing so that's not bad i i mean i met some brilliant people that were brilliant at law school that are great great ausas but uh, there's a lot more to the job than just just being smart sure when, well, when you're trying to distinguish yourself do you think do you think you throw away like your chance at getting that better job by starting out in like a really small county or like a really small oh, area? I don't, I, I don't, but I, I would say this, Ethan, uh, what I tell people this too, um, figure out a way. And I don't know what that is. You know, it depends how remote you are. Some, some, some district attorney's offices might be too small or so small that you just, the chances are not going to be out there. But I always tell uh, do you want to be a AUSA someday? Then go find the U.S. Attorney's Office near you and figure out ways to meet those people. Ask them to lunch. Talk to them about their, their jobs. Be friends with them. Figure out a case that you're working on that you know has federal jurisdiction as well and would be something that they would be interested in if somebody just told them about it. Because AUSAs are constantly looking for cases. They don't, you know, there's there's a, a lot of different ways that they get their work. Um, and that's what I would tell people, you know, uh, figure out a way to help the AUSA. Uh, if your boss lets you, the DA, of course, is, is in charge of the office and, and what they do. But if you have the opportunity, and a lot of ADAs are super covered up all the time, you know, offer your new newfound friend that's the AUSA, uh, hey, you got a case like this and you're trying to figure out what to do with these low level defendants that you don't want, you know, you're not really interested in them, but they need something needs to happen to them. Um, you take those cases if you can find a, you know, it's an appropriate, you know, exercise of your power. That's what I would do. Um, you could still be somebody like, and and I'll tell you how that works out. It'd be like, um, hey, there's an opportunity for a special assistant position. I just met, I know this guy, I don't know him that well, but I've had lunch with him a couple of times. Uh, he's interested in, you know, maybe coming over here someday. I don't know. Maybe we should ask him if he wants to try this special assistant position. Or, you know, there's opportunities that might come up like that, but you just sort of start building yourself up as somebody who is interested in the work and willing to do what it takes to do the work. And, and, uh, and that, that's what I would do. You know, I think, uh, and then, you know, you're look you're looking to be excellent at what you do. And because honestly, when it comes down to it, um, ADAs that are successful on the crossover, when they become AUSAs, they, they, what they've got going for them is they've done lots of cases, maybe hundreds of cases. Um, and the brainiacs from, you know, a civil law firm or, or, or a law clerk or whatever, they can't say that. So that's that's a huge thing. So you try to do cases that matter that even the AUSAs, oh, yeah, I heard about that case. I saw it in the newspaper or whatever. Or you're able to tell them about cases that that feather into a an idea that 
would be very similar to how the federal would work their case. Yeah. Those are some thoughts off the top of my head, but you, but you, but you need some luck. <laughs> like I, I was lucky. I was lucky. I got, I got hired when Congress was pushing a lot of money to the U S attorney's offices and creating new positions. And so at, when I got hired, I think three other people got hired around the same time in my district. That was a lot of people at that time. Four people was more than that guy had ever hired at one time in his, in his entire tenure. And so I think he actually thought, well, if this guy doesn't work out, you know, I could, I could spend one on a crazy, crazy pick. That's what I always thought. He always says that he knew I was going to be great, but I don't believe that for a second. Well, I'm sure he could see it. And you talked a lot about making your own luck and, you know, being, being prepared. I mean, as the old adage goes, right. Fortune favors the prepared. And so you find those niche things that you can really dig into. And those may become your greatest assets, even though you can't see it right away. I was going to ask you about that too. I mean, I, I think a lot of what you were just talking about gets at this question, but and Professor Bales, I I feel so strongly about what you were saying earlier about the white hat thing. And maybe mm-hmm. it's maybe it all stems from that Jimmy Stewart movie I saw all those years ago, or maybe it maybe sure it's because it I'm a, a second child and so I've got, you know, a very outsized sense of justice and fairness, but I, I'm, my question is how you quantify those inborn passionate feelings about doing right and protecting the American people, because, you know, you can, you can go around telling people, I, I believe in justice. I believe in being a good guy. I believe in chasing down bad guys and all that stuff. But in terms of making it your career, how, how would you yeah. go about quantifying those things? Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I can only tell you through the, uh, the magnifying glass of my own perspective and career. Uh, when you, for me, I went to work and, uh, and the law is like this. I mean, there's, I'm sure y'all have already been told you're going to take a job as an associate and they're going to work you, you know, 70 hours a week or whatever, blah, blah, blah. They got a bill, bill, bill. Uh, you don't bill. And the government. Uh, I love my wife and my family. And, uh, you know, I think I, at the same time, I, I, I also am a big fan of work balance. I mean, um, I don't know what that means because I, I think probably my own testimony would be that I wasn't always balanced. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, working on cases and rarely got home at the normal time. But my wife was a big supporter and I guess she knew me. And, uh, and that's the thing when you realize that like, this is like breathing or eating, uh, and to do this, this work. And it's, and, and when I say white hat stuff, I, what I'm talking about is, you know, you, you pretty soon find out. And, and like I was saying in class this past week, if you're in a situation where, you know, people are being way too cavalier about um, discovery or an agent that they, or an officer who they think is maybe not straight all the time. And that will happen. Um, and everybody's sort of like, well, he's really a good guy though. You know, maybe this affidavit's a little bit shaky or whatever, you know, my, I can't think of a myriad of, if you, if you're with a, a boss that, um, uh, just sort of like is telling you to crush everything, 
uh, all the time, you know, just because you can. I had a judge tell me one time, and it really, at the time, uh, that judge was, I just thought, this guy's too too liberal. You know, he, he doesn't always get, get us. Uh, and he probably was, maybe sometimes. But what he said to me one time was extremely uh, stirring, and it was exactly right, which is just because you can do it doesn't mean that you should. And that's the thing that I mean by uh, if there's nuance in the in the situ in your job is you can use a sledgehammer on every single thing and you will flatten a lot of things. But you're you're not just locking people up. Hopefully, at some level, you're building things, you're building things too. And a sledgehammer is not a very good tool for that. And, and when I say building things, I mean, I'm talking about uh, how you treat a victim, how you restore their hope and whatever after they've been victimized. Uh, I'm talking about defendants who uh, have just lived sorry lives, uh, but lived a life that you couldn't even imagine until you talk, sit down and talk to them for yourself. And you you show them a different way. And and. So people say, oh, you know, jailhouse conversion, blah, blah, blah. It's a phony thing. Uh, It can be. I've seen phony ones, but I've also seen some legitimate ones where people's lives were changed because I prosecuted them and then invested in them in a way that they never expected. And it's some of the most rewarding stuff that ever happened to me in my career. So um, I I think, uh, you know, how I, I, I knew it from the minute I can't explain it except I just like had a piece about my work. Uh, now, did I was in cases where I felt like this is messed up, and I mean what I mean by that is, uh, you know, w- you'll know when you're getting into a situation where you're uh, the drivers, the normal drivers of the case are the facts, and sometimes you can be in a case where the driver is the nature of the witness who gives you the so-called facts been in a couple of situations where um, a case was brought to us and the person who, who gave you the information turns out that they got pretty good agenda and you start checking things out and, um, and it's not checking out. You know, it's just like, well, what's going on here? This is weird because my boss just told me this guy told him this and we need to investigate it. And, and that's the thing that you've got to, when I you know, say about white, wearing white hat stuff, you've got to have the intestinal fortitude to work that case. And then you start going, well, if this guy is not the boss's friend, we're never working on this stuff. And that makes me really nervous, but I'm going to work it because I was told to investigate these various leads. But then you've got to have the guts to go back and say, this didn't check out. This isn't right. In fact, I'm, I think this guy is trying to, take advantage of us, your friendship. I've had that happen. And then, you know, then, you know, you've arrived where you can say to your boss or to another AUSA or to whoever, you know, that wants a certain result. um, There's no crime here. Hmm. Uh, We need to move on. And, and, uh, and that's what I mean. Why the cases, the, the work, the job is so, so amazing. You know, the, the power that the prosecutor has to, to do stuff and not to do stuff is pretty, pretty phenomenal. Wow. 
Well, that's, and that's such a good reminder and a good way to, to frame it up. I think, I think a lot of times, you know, folks get bent out of shape thinking, you know, because, and you're going to have to pardon this metaphor, but ham, you know, prosecutors wielding that hammer of justice and the saying goes, when you're holding a hammer, every problem looks like a nail to be flattened. Mm-hmm. But what right. you're reminding us is that, you know, hammers can build as much as they can flatten. It just depends on the hand, you know, that's, that's wielding it. So not to wax too philosophical on a Friday afternoon, but no, uh, that's fine because I think that's really, if you don't, uh, that's why I enjoyed the job because it was something that uh, I thought uh, I'm not just building into the people that I'm serving, you know, the generic public, but uh, my partner, you know, the AUSA who's on the case with me, the agent who is bringing, trying to work this case and, you know, may have a, you know, his own things that he's trying to get done and think about uh, the defense lawyer. And of course the defendants themselves, you know, the witnesses, it's just, man, it is so interesting. And I think uh, um, that's why I enjoy the sentencing class and uh, in both classes that I teach, because if one thing I hope they get out of it, and I'm always interested and I always ask, you know, how many students want to be prosecutors? And I'm interested in the other people that want to be defense lawyers as well, or maybe they just signed up because it fits in their schedule. That's okay too. Mm-hmm. But I really am dialed in on people who want to be prosecutors because I is such a enormously powerful job to do really good things or really uh, not so good things. And I, I say bad things. I mean, there's this. You know, I, I hope people understand what I'm saying is that, that there is a the, the 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 fulcrum of the justice system is heavily on the prosecutor mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there that really they really are the most powerful part of the justice system and their decision processes are really um, enormously important to how how well this is going to work or not a lot of other parties involved too you know congress passes the laws or the legislature passes the law the judges obviously are, are important but the judges can only be reactive it's the proactive parts of the of the legal justice system that have the power, and the principal ones are what I talked about earlier. The the prosecutors are the quarterbacks. You know, the, if the quarterback can can do really well, or if he doesn't do well, then the, then it's not going to work. The team is going to lose, and and that's what it's it's intoxicating to have that kind of authority and power, but it also should be extremely sobering. And uh, something that you, uh, you know, pray that you'll be wise in how you exercise it. Wow. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Professor, we're about out of time for sure. our our interview today. I'm sure we could we could keep talking about all the different facets of what you've done. But I think for our purposes, we've, we've never heard these kind of things on the podcast before. So I really appreciate you, you know, giving us an overview of the federal system, telling us about your career and kind of giving us some of the highlights. Um, any parting wisdom or anything else you'd like to leave our, our listeners with? You don't have to be a person of faith to do this job well. It really was important to me, though, because I did think I was not just answering to my bosses or to my oath, which is a big deal to support and defend the Constitution. But ultimately, for me, I, I really felt like I was answering to to God uh, for for what I was doing with the with what He had provided for me, which was this amazing job with all the authorities 
and responsibilities that were part of it. And uh, that's what I, I, you know, what, however folks reckon with that, um, you know, there is this, this life is hugely important, but I think it's, there's more to this life than, than what we experience. Um, there is an eternity and I, and I want uh, I want people to say that knew me that he was, a, he really, he was excellent at what he did. He was, he was a straight guy and uh, a good friend and hardworking and all the things that you want to hear about yourself, hopefully uh, when people say nice things about you. But I really want, um, you know, you, you, the law is one of those weird professions that you can change uh, the lives of the people that you work for, whether it's in service or they're your clients. They need you desperately to help them in a, in a really tough spot or the public needs you in a really tough spot to do something about what this person has done. That's a crime. And uh, I, I want to be, you know, my eternal marker would be that I did something that I did it the right way. And, uh, and that uh, life, at least uh, for the, for the waves that I created was better because I created those waves. It's an, it's an excellent vision. Thank you for leaving us with that. Sure. Thank you so much again for joining us. Uh, we're going to leave it there for this week, our listeners, and we will catch you on the next episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. Take care. Take care.